Amen. Amen. Good evening. Welcome to uh, our midweek study. Uh, we're just glad you're tuning in online to watch and uh, take some time to worship and pray and spend time in your word. We pray that it is a time of renewing and refreshing for you as you uh, connect with us. And so we look forward to what the Lord has for us this evening. Uh, quickly, just in the way of announcements, uh, Pastor Jeff is taking a couple weeks off uh, just to rest and relax himself. Uh, I think he's doing some fishing this week, so we just, just pray for Pastor Jeff that uh, uh, he's renewed and refreshed as well in his time away from here. Um, also, things that are coming up, uh, the info and sign up for the high school worship team and also the high school and middle school youth are meeting once again this Friday and Saturday. And for both of those, you can find that information uh, in the e-bulletin uh, from last week. And of course, it'll be in there again this week as well. So as far as announcement goes, I think we're covered on that. Uh, if you will, this evening, turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of John. Turn to the Gospel of John. And we're going to start right with chapter 1. On June 23rd, 2013, many of us or many of you may have watched Nick Walinda walk across the little Colorado River Gorge near the Grand Canyon. 1,500 feet above the canyon floor, he walked on a tightrope for a quarter of a mile trying to keep his balance as the wind was blowing at speeds of 30 miles an hour. It was excruciating just watching him make the 22-minute journey. If his pole tipped too much one way or the other, he would fall off the wire and plunge to his death. And so too for us, trying to live and minister the way that Jesus did is, is something of a high-wire act for us as well. To keep our balance, we hold on to the gospel like an aerialist holding on to a balance pole. On one side, there's grace. On the other side, there's truth. Let the, tip, the pole tip too much one way or the other and we'll lose our balance. Lean either way too strongly, we'll fall off. It's only as we hold the pole in balance that we can walk the way that Jesus walked, live the way that he lived, and impact our world the way that he desires. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to study from your word this evening. We pray that the truths that are contained in it would impact our hearts and minds. But Lord, that we would see that without a doubt, since it's uh, it came from you that it is bathed in your grace as well. You desire to teach us and show us, uh, Lord, as you've lovely, lovingly done uh, the entire time we've walked with you. And so, Father, bless our time of study this evening, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So John chapter 1, look at verse 14. John chapter 1, verse 14 and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. 
So what's the main focus or the main person that we see in this particular verse? It's the word. Now I'd like for you to stay with me for just a minute and let's take a look at how well verses 1 and verses 14 fit together or weave together. Follow along starting with verse 1 and then we're going to jump over to verse 14. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. You see, connected together in a continuous theme, if you will, about what? The main focus of this passage, the Word. Now, this is not to minimize how the Word is described in verses 2 through 13 at all. We see he's described there as Word, life, and light. And it is interesting to note that as you read through the first 17 verses of this first chapter of John, that the name of Jesus isn't even mentioned until the end of verse 17. He's referred to as the Word, the life, the light. But by way of introduction and review for all of us tonight, I want us to establish or take a look at, look at and ground ourselves in who the Word is in verses 1 and 14. The term... The word, word, is used in different ways in the Bible. In the New Testament, there are two Greek words, translated word, rima and logos. And they have slightly different meanings. Rima usually means a spoken word. For example, in Luke 1.38, when the angel told Mary that she would be the mother of God's son, Mary replied, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word, or Rima. Logos, however, it has a, a broader, more philosophical meaning. This is the term used here in John 1. And it usually implies a total message. It's used mostly in reference to God's message to us, to mankind. Example, Luke 43. 4.32 says that when Jesus taught the people, they were amazed at his teaching because his words, logos, had authority. It says the people were amazed not merely by the particular words that Jesus chose, but by his total message, the total package, the power and the authority of what and how he said it. The word, logos, in John 1 is obviously referring to Jesus. Jesus is the total message, the total complete fulfillment of the word or logos, who he was, who he is, what he did and what he does. The word was from the beginning. The word was with God. The word was God and the word became flesh. We recognize the word in these verses is, of course, Jesus himself. So we could substitute Jesus for the word, word in these verses without sacrificing any of the truth of the word because he is the word. Let's try that. In, in the beginning was Jesus, and Jesus was with God, and Jesus was God. And since Jesus was God, then the truth then is that God became flesh and dwelt among us in the person of Jesus Christ. That would be an entirely accurate interpretation of these verses. 
Jesus was, is, the complete personification or perfect definition of the word or logos. Back to verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Now we're going to focus on this verse for the rest of our study this evening. We're going to break it apart, see what God would show us and the truth that he has for us in this verse. And the word became flesh. John tells us that Jesus, the word, became flesh or put on flesh. Four simple words. The word became flesh. But probably the most profound statement ever uttered in the history of the universe and in such simple little words, the word became flesh. But do we really recognize the magnitude, the importance of what that is saying? Think of it in this way. Infinity became finite. Eternity got squeezed into time. The invisible became visible. The supernatural reduced itself to confinement in the natural. Essentially, God himself became a man. And wrap your brain around this. We live in a natural world. God is and has always been supernatural. God came in to this natural world. He created supernaturally as Jesus Christ in the flesh. There was a story years ago in Reader's Digest about a mother who was putting her two-year-old son to bed, and as she left the room, he pleaded with her not to leave because he was scared. And his mother tried to reassure him by telling him that God would be there with him all night long. But the little boy replied, but mother, I need God with skin on. God with skin on, simple phrase, but theologically totally accurate. The word became flesh. How? How, do, how does that even happen? What does that look like? The word became flesh. Well, there's probably no question in all of theology and philosophy that has, been, has spawned more debate. The word became flesh. But an accurate answer for us can be given in one word. Mystery. It's a mystery. It's this great mystery, mystery of the why and how that led Paul to write in 1 Timothy 3.16. And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifested in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen by angels, preached among the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up in glory. You've heard the term, I'm sure, God incarnate. To incarnate means to become flesh. The incarnation of Jesus is when the human nature of Jesus the man was added to the nature of God. It is where God became man. It was the voluntary act of Jesus to humble himself so that he might die for our sins. Thus, Jesus has two natures, a divine nature and a human nature. 
This is what is referred to as the hypostatic union. Hypostatic union is the union of two natures, divine and human, in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus is God in the flesh. He is fully God and fully man. He's not half God and half man. He is 100% God and 100% man. As God coming down to the earth, becoming man, he never lost his divinity. He continued to exist as God when he became a man and added the human nature to himself. Therefore, there is a union in one person of a fully divine nature and a fully human nature. So the word became flesh. Back to verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. I love the way Eugene Peterson translated this text. He says, the word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. I like that. The word became flesh and moved onto our street to live among us. Well, the English word translated dwelt is the Greek word skenosin, which means to encamp among us, to pitch a tent among us, to tabernacle among us. In the Old Testament, the tabernacle was the main point of contact between God and man. Later, of course, the, the temple represented this as well. In the New Testament, Jesus Christ came as the point of contact between God and man, the mediator, the God-man, 100% God, 100% man, and the mediator between God and man. 1 Timothy 2.5 tells us, For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. The tabernacle and the temple were temporary dwelling places. They didn't last. They were destroyed or replaced. But God dwelling in Christ has always been and will always be. We also know about the tabernacle that it was covered with badger skins. It was plain and earthy on the outside. But on the inside was gold, silver, precious stones and fine embroidery. For the very presence, the substance, the glory of God dwelt there. Jesus was the same. So ordinary looking that Judas had to identify him to the Roman soldiers by a kiss. But the very presence, the very substance, the glory of God was with him. The Gospels have contained in them the life of Jesus Christ here on earth. Evidence that he was here, evidence that he dwelt here, evidence that he interacted with man as God and as a man. John testifies of this in this verse as an eyewitness, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. John is saying here, we saw his glory, we witnessed his glory firsthand. We were eyewitnesses. John writes in 1 John chapter 1 about Jesus. He says, we've heard him, we've seen him, we've looked upon him, we've handled him, we bear witness of him, we declare him. They realized 
When we heard him talk, we were listening to the voice of God. When we looked upon him, we were looking upon God. When we touched him, we were touching God. We, we saw him, we gazed, we touched. And John and the other eyewitnesses responded by bearing witness of him, declaring him. We beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father. Two phrases tied together could be read. We saw firsthand the glory of Jesus Christ, which is the same as the glory of the Father, God. Jesus is the glory of God. The glory as of the only begotten of the Father. In Hebrews 1.3, the author there explains this for us. He says, Jesus, who being the brightness of his glory, God's glory, and the express image of his person, God's person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, God's power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Jesus was, Jesus is, a perfect reflection of the Father, of God. John says, I saw it every day that I was with him. If you might remember in John chapter 2 when Jesus changes the water into wine, John summarizes this when he writes in verse 11, this beginning of signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. Jesus manifested his glory to them every day. As John chronicles the life of Jesus in his gospel, he is giving testimony of what he saw in Jesus, how he taught, how he served, how he loved, how he performed miracles, how he manifested his glory in all of these things. So if someone were to ask you or I, they say, give me a definition of God's glory. We could do it in one simple word, Jesus. The glory of Jesus Christ is manifested in the lives that have been changed by seeing him for who he is. His glory manifested to us and in us. Each one of us that are believers in Jesus Christ, we have our own glory story, our own testimony or testimonies of God's glory in our lives and how he's worked out in our lives, we should write them down. We should document them just as John did. Go back to verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Full of grace and truth. The text doesn't say grace or truth, but and. Full of grace and truth. Jesus is full of grace. Jesus is full of truth. Jesus is grace fulfilled. Jesus is truth revealed full of grace, full of truth. In the Greek, full definition of that is complete grace and truth, absolute, the epitome of. Jesus 
is the complete definition of grace and truth. The more we walk with Jesus, the more we learn about him, we discover this amazing fact. He is the perfect blend of grace and truth. But now we, on the other hand, are not. Sometimes we can be very truthful without showing much grace. We can be hard to be around at sometimes. We can have a tendency to make others feel guilty because we're not showing grace. Sometimes we can be very gracious and misrepresent the truth. Fun to be around for a time, but we have a tendency maybe even to be flaky because we're not grounded in the truth. Two important principles for us to remember. Grace without truth can deceive people and not accurately represent grace. Truth without grace can crush people and not accurately represent truth. Let me say those again. Grace without truth can deceive people and not accurately represent grace. Truth without grace can crush people and not accurately represent truth. As we've said, Jesus was the perfect balance of grace and truth because that's what he was. He was grace and truth. In Acts chapter 4, verse 33, we see the impact that this had on Jesus' disciples and the early church. We see in that verse, it says, with great power, the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and much grace was upon them all. It says, much grace was upon them all. Why? Because they were telling the truth. They gave witness to the resurrection, and great grace was upon them. The body of truth flowing with the blood of grace. So what was the church growth formula in the book of Acts? Displaying grace while giving the truth, and giving the truth while displaying grace. Those two working hand in hand. But for us, when we fail the grace test, when we fail the truth test, we do fail to be Christ-like. We're not representing Jesus Christ effectively. And even in churches today, some churches can embrace truth but are in desperate need of a healthy dose of grace. Other churches can talk about grace but are in desperate need for a healthy dose of truth. If we minimize grace, the world sees no hope for salvation. If we minimize truth, the world sees no need for salvation. Now the Jews in Jesus' day were familiar with truth, but grace itself was somewhat foreign to them. If you look down from below uh, John 1.14 to verse 17, it says, For the law was given through Moses, but what? Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Grace was evident in the Old Testament, 
It was just overshadowed by the truth, the law. They believed that if they kept the law, they would be in good standing with God. The problem was they couldn't. You see, the law revealed sin, but Jesus removes it. Randy Alcorn writes in his book, The, the Grace and Truth Paradox, that a bird needs two wings to fly. If he only has one wing, then he's grounded. Or at best, he just flies around in a circle all the time. Uh, I added that part myself. That's not in Randy's book. But Alcorn goes on to say that the gospel flies with the wings of grace and truth. Not one, but both. Jesus wasn't 50% grace, 50% truth. He was 100% of both. And like I've already stated, we are typically and unfortunately not always like that. We sometimes have a tendency to choose one over the other. Think about it like this. It's like a, a dog trying to play with two chew toys. Both of them won't fit in his mouth, so he has to pick up one or the other. Or, if he's a bigger dog, he tries to get both chew toys in his mouth, but one of them spurts out. There's not room for both. We sometimes think and act like we're a big dog. We certainly have bigger mouths, but our minds struggle with holding on to both grace and truth at the same time. One or the other of them spurts out. Gang... Let's, let's take a minute and make an honest assessment of ourselves. Let's, let's all, as we look at this, show humility in this. Because some of what I'm about to say is going to be hard, hard to take, hard to hear, hard to swallow. It was for me as I prepared for this study. But in humility, let's see what God would say to us in this. As believers, I think we all need a good, strong reminder that we are Christians first. We are Christians first. Of all of the ways that the world tries to categorize people today, we need to remember that in God's eyes, there's only two types of people, saved and unsaved, believers and unbelievers, those who are in Christ and those who are not. And for the unsaved, for the unbeliever, again, if we minimize grace to them, they see no hope for salvation. If we minimize truth to them, they see no need for salvation. We are always to be Christian first. That's to be our identity in Christ first. Not conservative first, not liberal first, not Republican first, not Democrat first, but Christian. That's our identity. Above all else, we are in Christ. But because we sometimes get our priority as Christians out of order, then we don't show grace and truth the way that we should. When we truly love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, as we are commanded, God gives us the capacity by the power of the Holy Spirit to love others naturally. 
as you've heard Pastor Jeff say before, because God's commandments are God's enablements. God doesn't command us to do something that he doesn't also enable us to do. God's love, God's grace shining through us to others, showing grace and giving truth. Now, yes, we can't control how they respond, but something is inherently wrong if all unbelievers hate us. But also, something's wrong if all unbelievers like us. If we accurately demonstrate grace and truth, some will be drawn to us, drawn to Christ. Some will be offended by us, just as they were by Jesus. If we offend everybody, it's because we've taken on the truth mantle without grace. But if we offend nobody, it's because we've watered down the truth in the name of grace. Jesus was and is full of grace and truth, 100%. But also take notice of, in this verse, grace comes before truth. So we are to show grace while giving the truth, just like the early church. Show grace, give the truth, because that's what Jesus did. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to look at your word and see the application that it has for us in this verse this evening. Father, it is hard to hear. It's, it's hard to swallow. As we ponder it, as we focus upon it, We do feel guilty, Lord. We know that we haven't handled uh, that which describes you so well. We haven't handled that well. Grace and truth. We struggle with that, Lord. We want to be those that show grace and give truth. And we know that we need your power working in us and through us to do just that. And that in those times when we don't have that balance that we need, that your Holy Spirit would convict us, rebuke us, help us to see that we're not handling the situation correctly. We're not saying what we should say or doing what we should do according to the grace and the truth that we have learned and we see in Jesus Christ. Lord, especially in times like this, and all that we see going on in our country, Lord, I can confess myself that it's so quick, we can be so quick to pass judgment, that we can look at a situation and we look at it politically, or we look at it selfishly. Lord, when we should be looking at it with your heart in your eyes, relying upon grace and truth, Father, as so many out there are lost, and they know not what they do. As Jesus said that on the cross, forgive them, Father, they know not what they do. 
Lord, we should be in a place of having a forgiving attitude towards them as well. And to be there to show them love. Yeah, some will receive it and some won't. But you've still commanded us to do that, Lord, and you'll handle the results. So, Father, we pray that you strengthen us in this area. We pray that you instill in us hearts of compassion and mercy. Lord, without and never sacrificing the truth of your word. Father, work in us, work in all of us. Help us to overcome those things, Lord, that would keep us from being Christ-like. Father, for those that might be hearing this message tonight, uh, there's a lot that was said that maybe they didn't understand. But Lord, help them understand this. You saw a world in a state of sin, and it was according to your plan that you sent your son who became a man and came to this earth to die for sinful mankind because we had no hope of salvation without it. And so, Father, the simple message of the gospel for those that might respond as they see themselves as those that have sinned, those that would fall short of your righteous requirement. Lord, and they desire to respond to the love that you pour out to them. You love them anyway. But yet, Lord, you love them so much you don't want them to stay where they are in that state of sin. So help them to see who Jesus is clearly and help them respond to the love that he extends his loving out, hand out to them. If you've never accepted the love that Jesus Christ offers to you to save you from your sin, I ask that you just pray this short prayer. Dear Lord Jesus, I recognize that I'm a sinner. And I may not know a whole lot about your word and about you, but I, I understand the simple truth that I am a sinner and you are a savior and you came to this earth to die on the cross, be resurrected from the dead, to sit down at the right hand of the Father, to accomplish the work and the task that the Father sent you to do to redeem the world to yourself. I confess my sin to you, Lord, and I ask that you would come and live in me, that my identity would be in you, that I would be and act and say things that are Christ-like, to be a Christian, to belong to you, to be in Christ, in Jesus' name. If you've prayed that prayer, I ask that you would let someone know, uh, either through email to us, uh, a phone call, but let us know of the decision that you've made. We want to rejoice together with you. We want to help you grow in your walk. And for the rest of us, for those of us that have been and are believers in Jesus Christ, 
Lord, it's my prayer this evening that as they've listened to this message, they don't feel beat up, but they feel built up, that we've been encouraged in your word and what it is that you have to say to us through it, that we might aspire to be more and more like Jesus, showing and being grace and truth to all of those around us. Father, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, thanks for joining us. Have a good evening, and um, we hope to see you again on Sunday morning. God bless.